0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. Antonio Garcia Martinez is on the podcast, and this guy has been around the block. Facebook, Twitter, Apple, he's seen it all. He knows the internet. We talk about his journey, why the internet's boring, and why it's broken, and how to fix it. A few things to look for in today's episode. Number one, he actually defines what an internet ad is. It was surprisingly useful to me. A unit of your attention sold at the highest bidder. We get into that definition, what it means. He also says, for the good and the bad, advertisers were the ones who paid for the internet. We talk about what this means. We talk about the flaws and also the benefits. We also talk about why Antonio thinks NFT drops are actually ads. Lastly, we talk about attribution and how attribution on Web3 can help us win against big Silicon Valley and the big banks. David, Antonio's just a lot of fun to talk to. He's kind of a straight shooter, Mm -hmm. tells it like it is. Yeah, what were your takes going into this episode? Yeah, Antonio...
1: I think he's going to be able to tell the story of the complete trajectory, hopefully, of the ad-based models of Web 2 as it goes into Web 3. And of course, how hopefully, again, Web 3 doesn't just take the same, same ad models of Web 2, but it gives it its own native spin, right? Like how the ad-based model of Web 2 is going to change, yet still achieve some of the same goals that ads do in Web 3. And I think rather than just like poo-pooing on ads in general, Antonio in this podcast really gives a pretty clear and sober idea of what an ad is, why ads are actually good. The take that ads actually paved the way for the internet to be adopted, I thought was a pretty good one. And then also, then later, it comes to become extractive and bad and evil. And then he, of course, is starting this company called Spindle, which he thinks can help create the ad model of Web3 that is hopefully a way that's non-extractive, that is enabling of users. But his history is insane, Ryan. As you know, worked on Facebook before the Facebook ad exchange was in existence, helped build the Facebook ad exchange, and so he saw the before and after of what we now know of modern Facebook. He also started an ad company, sold it to Twitter. He's been around Silicon Valley. And so I think in the future, as this Web3 world gets built out, Antonio himself will have seen the complete like trajectory of ads on the internet. And I think this is really just going to be the lesson that Bankless listeners take away today is The ad model is going to still exist in Web3 and is going to be different and hopefully better if we do it
0: right. One thing we also talk about is privacy. If you're curious about that, some back and forth on that. Mm -hmm. He has some interesting opinions on that, so look out for that. And by the way, David, when we were talking about that, I noticed it's about four or five times you said the word hopefully. I want to talk about you more about Mm -hmm. that word hopefully, but we'll save that for the debrief. The debrief, of course, is the episode that David and I record right after the episode, which is literally what we're about to go do, mm-hmm. where we give you our raw and unfiltered thoughts. It's available for all premium subscribers. If you want to upgrade, get the premium RSS feed, you can do so. There's a link in the show notes, as always, to do that. Now we're going to get right to our episode with Antonio. But before we do, we want to tell you about these tools to help you go bankless.
1: In all of my years in crypto, I've never been hacked, scammed, or lost money to a thief. And a lot of that credit goes to my Ledger hardware wallet. The Ledger Nano X and the Ledger Nano S Plus Hardware wallets allow users like you and me to secure and manage all of our crypto assets and our NFTs, all with the security of storing users' private keys offline and out of reach from hackers. The Ledger Nano X is the perfect hardware wallet for managing your crypto and NFTs on the go because it connects to your phone with Bluetooth and has a nice big screen for easy transaction readings. Ledger has also upgraded the iconic Ledger Nano S and made the new Ledger Nano S device more DeFi and NFT friendly, making it the perfect hardware wallet for beginners. Ledger has truly maximized for both ease of use and security. So discover which Ledger device is best suited for your journey by going and visiting shop.ledger.com. is your secure, multi-chain on-ramp into Web3, and it's built directly into the Brave privacy browser. Gone are the days of managing multiple wallet extensions that put you at risk of phishing, spoofs, and tracking. With the Brave wallet, you can securely manage your crypto assets across more than 100 different chains, including Ethereum, Layer 2s, Solana, and more, all without downloading risky extensions. The Brave Wallet is easy to set up and removes the headache of jumping between wallets and extensions. It's lightweight, but packed with great features, like built-in token swaps, buying and holding NFTs with a gallery view, and support for hardware wallets. But also much more than that, because Brave is shipping new features every single month, with a mission to make Web3 easier to navigate for its over 55 million users. Wallet extensions are a thing of the past. So get started with Brave's Web3 Ready browser today and experience a decentralized web seamlessly without all the clutter. You can download the browser at brave.com slash bankless and click the wallet icon to get started.
0: Bankless Nation, we are super excited to introduce you to Antonio Garcia Martinez. He is a tech entrepreneur. He was early at Facebook, also at Twitter. He knows social media. He knows its flaws. He knows the effect of social media on society and the major effect it's had on his life. He's gonna tell us what it's been like to be in the belly of the beast, what he's learned and why he is in crypto as a result. Antonio, welcome to Bankless. It's great to have you. Thanks, Ryan. Thanks, David. How are you doing, man? You just came back from Miami, I think. Little trip out there. I'm a little tanned. Yeah, I got some sun. (laughs) Yeah. I hope you enjoyed yourselves because you've had an exciting life, I would say, as we look through this bio. David, why don't you just tee up mm-hmm. Antonio's bio sure. for bankless listeners who haven't run across uh, who Antonio is?
1: Yeah, and Antonio, I think you're going to fit in very well on this podcast because of you are extremely <laughs> multidisciplinary. So started at Goldman Sachs pre-2008, moved into a Y Combinator startup ad groc, which you sold to Twitter in 2011. Then you started working at Facebook in that same year, director of Facebook's ad exchange, which is a point in this podcast that we are going to dive into definitely, left Facebook in 2013 to write a book. You wrote this book called Chaos Monkeys, Obscene Fortune and Random Failure in Silicon Valley, talking about a lot of your experiences. And then you also had a brief stint at Apple in 2021. And you're now at Spindle, which is a Web3 attestation platform, which I believe takes a lot of the lessons that you've learned in Silicon Valley, working on the Facebook ad exchange. But now, now that we have this new blockchain platform, taking a Web3 stance towards some of the lessons that you've learned in Silicon Valley. Antonio, how do you like that for a description
2: of all of the places that you've been in the world? You included all the good stuff and excluded all the bad stuff, <laughs> which is great. Or you did exclude some good stuff, too. There's There were some weird detours in there, including living in an off-grid yurt And, you know, moving to Europe and a few other things. But uh, yeah, mostly you got the trajectory right. Yes.
1: Thanks. So Antonio, it's a hard question to ask because you've been to so many places. This podcast, I think we're going to talk a lot about Facebook and the Facebook ad exchange, because I think that your time at Facebook straddled that. So you were at Facebook pre-ad exchange and post-ad exchange. And so we want to talk about how did that era of Facebook, which you had involvement in, change the direction of the company, but also change the direction of the internet and, you know, this place that we go to the internet. How did that change? And then we also want to pick your brain about perhaps what you see as a trajectory, learning what you've learned at Facebook and Twitter and just being in Silicon Valley, how that's going to go forward if with blockchain and how the whole blockchain role changes the game of the internet. Does that sound good? Yeah,
2: definitely, did. Thanks for pumping me up. (laughs) I should mention it was a group effort at Facebook, but it's true that I was there at the formative time where the five or six products that made Facebook were shipped. So that was a fascinating thing to see. But yeah.
1: So let's start this story at
2: Adgrok. Yeah. Can you talk about the oh, inspiration God. for Agrock and, <laughs> and where that came from and what AdRock did? Yeah, it's funny. I mean, this is like total deja vu. So I'm, I'm right now in San Francisco, of SoMa, across from South Park. Mm-hmm. Agrock's office was like two blocks that way, <laughs> <laughs> right? And I remember living like the Web2 boom, which like this used to be the pulsing heart of like consumer internet Web2 10 years ago. Now it's pretty empty. There's a reason why you can't afford this office. But yeah, Agrock was basically, so one step in there, I went from Goldman, which is basically pricing and trading credit derivatives. That whole blow up in 2008. I joined an ad tech company that was my first exposure to ad tech company run by sociopath. It wasn't amazing, but they had very good recruiting. So I met two co-founders and like literally the last day of the deadline, we applied to YC back when YC was still kind of somewhat of a niche thing in the sense that, you know, it was only 35 companies. Paul still ran the show, et cetera. And we managed to get in. We oddly managed to get in with basically no product. And the idea there, one of the great unsolved problems at the time, and again, this is ancient history, but it sounds like you want to stroll down memory lane, so let's do it. Mm-hmm. You know, Google AdWords, right, the little ads that you see on the right, like when you in case you don't know, it, and there's a whole riff on this in Chaos Monkeys, like if you enter a query, that unleashes a whole wave of computation to match a set of ads that targeted that query, right? And those queries literally have prices to them. So for a while, there's this form of lung cancer called mesothelioma that asbestos workers got after the 40s mm-hmm. that I think now you can no longer bid on it because it's a little bit skeezy. But back in the day, you clicked on anything with mesothelioma Somebody paid a hundred bucks for that click, right? And yeah, yeah, yeah. And, well, like some kind of an attorney or something? Yeah, like yeah, this, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is uh, personal injury it, attorneys yeah, yeah. who are in class yeah. action suits against whoever right. had the asbestos plant. The
0: ambulance chaser type, you know, that kind of exactly. Exactly,
2: exactly. But the cool thing is that you've got like a piece of human thought and attention, which is, oh, do I have mesothelioma? That gets auctioned and sold off like a can of tomatoes (laughs) or like a (laughs) a share of Google, right, in an open market. And then it all happens billions of times a day, right? So the Google thing was one of the first examples if we're going at internet history. And this is way before my time in the ad tech space. Wait, wait, that's an interesting
0: mental model. Like a piece of human attention gets auctioned
2: and sold off to the highest bidder. That is wild. I've never thought about it in those terms that's exactly what it is. A quantum of human <laughs> attention is being sold. And that—that's wow. it's not just on search. Right. Every app you open, every time you load a Facebook, like in the case of programmatic exchanges, literally requests go out and say, obviously, pseudonymously, but this human is here. What do you know about them? All these databases spin into gear, machine learning models, all the rest of it. They return with a bid and a piece of ad creative. Somebody wins the auction and boom, and then it happens billions and billions of times a day. Yes.
0: And the winner doesn't actually care necessarily about the well-being of the human who's behind the attention that it's receiving, it just cares about the ROI. It's just an economic calculation. And so am I going to make more money on this human's attention than it costs me to purchase it?
2: Yes. I mean, this is not a utopia. The advertiser (laughs) is not trying to improve your mental health. But (laughs) the reason why advertising exists, right? Advertising is a weird thing, right? It's not like I make a thing and then sell it. It's like this weird triangle trade, right? Advertising exists when some other party is willing to pay more money to the provider of the service than I'm willing to pay for the service, right? If that inequality holds, someone's willing to pay to reach me through that service more than I'm willing to pay for the service, then some form of advertising must exist, which is why I think it will end up existing in Web3 as well. But this is why, like, you know, The sort of cynical statement that ad tech people say after the fifth drink at the conference is, well, you know, we pay for the Internet, which is true. They paid for much of Web 2, which doesn't mean, not to say that it has to be that way going forward. I think Web 3 is going to have way more interesting monetization models. But if you expand the definition of ads widely enough, you're already seeing it happen in Web 3. An NFT drop is an ad, basically, right? It's a piece of targeted media that's driving user action. We're skipping ahead. I don't want to get too off the topic,
1: David. Well, I love the deconstruction that you just did, and I want to just emphasize that a little bit. Advertising happens when somebody, it's more economically viable for somebody to access the attention of the user than the user is willing to pay for the service that they are entering. Correct. That's pretty cool. I love that definition. I feel like that's pretty close to the metal of what a definition for advertising is. That's right. And then the other thing that you said is that advertisers paid for the internet.
2: Can you just unpack that a little bit? Elaborate on that. Just riff on that for a little bit. I mean, so... Let's think about it. I mean, I'm not even a Facebook user anymore, but how much how much money does Facebook make off the average user? That metric's just known as ARPU, average revenue per user. It doesn't get used in Web3 at all. It should get used more. Part of Spindle's point is helping you calculate that thing. Mm -hmm. But basically what it means is, how much money am I making off that user over some set period of time? That ARPU for Facebook, I haven't looked at the numbers recently, but it's north of 100 bucks, right? Like, ask yourselves this, would you pay 100 bucks for Instagram, or would you pay 100 bucks for WhatsApp? You probably extract more than $100 of value, but would you necessarily pay for it? Probably not, mm. right? Like per year, Antonio? Yeah, yeah, per year. Okay, yeah. Okay. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, we probably would because we're in media. Like, I'd pay more than 100 bucks. Like, right. if anything, the, the $8 blue check from Elon is like cheap compared to its actual value, right? Right. But for the average user, for the three plus billion people that use Facebook and its social, it's a lot. It's a lot of money, right? They're not going to pay it. Mm-hmm. And note also that A network obviously has network effects, right? Facebook is worth something because there's 3 billion people on it, right? If it had half as many people, it's not worth half as much. It's worth a quarter as much, right? This is known as Metcalfe's Law, Mm -hmm. that the value of a network was roughly as the square of the number of people on it. I mean, it's a rule of thumb. It's not exact, obviously. But in a state where you have network effects and you have a mass consumer product, advertising almost has to play a role because what you'd lose in growth if you actually put up a paywall in front of Facebook would be extraordinarily expensive if every marginal user is actually you know, exponentially important. That's interesting because it's a
0: double-edged sword. Advertisers paid for the internet Mm -hmm. is interesting because for the good and the
2: bad, right? But a a tremendous amount of good has been created. Yeah. And not just a first order of like, oh, look, we have Instagram we wouldn't have otherwise. There's also second order effects. Like, look, it's funny that um, I did some pieces back in the early days of Wired. I'm not the only one to observe it. This period, this like 80 to 90 year period of like somewhat objective, both sides journalism, where there's fact checking, like, I mean, now I think things are getting more partisan, but at least in theory, unlike much of Europe or other parts of the world, a newspaper kind of tries to get it right and show both sides in the United States. Why was that? I mean, it was partially for ideological reasons, right? But if you go back and read the works of uh, Walter Lippmann, he was an early intellectual that founded the first journalism schools. He wrote a book called Public Opinion. It was partially ideological because the press had gotten World War One very wrong, right? But it was partially also a commercial decision. Macy's basically needed the most reach possible to run its ads, right? And so the New York Times of the world, New York Times actually started as a publication that was not overtly partisan, right? A newspaper in the 19th century was like the press Democrat. It was literally like the Democratic Party's paper in that town. And if you were a member of that party, you subscribed to that paper. And if you were part of the GOP, you read something else altogether, right? And that's just the way journalism worked until about the beginning of the 20th century. And so journalism gave us this sort of golden period of... Relatively somewhat objective and nonpartisan media. And so if you switch to a subscription model, which everything is going to, by the way, whether it be Substack or the New York Times, now makes an enormous amount of money from its digital subscriptions, right? Well, at the end of the day, the customer gets what it wants. And the customer used to want nonpartisan, agreeable media. And now the customer wants its own views reflected back at them because the customer <laughs> is the reader. And again, like it's not necessarily an unalloyed good that suddenly readers are getting what they want all the time, right? So. There's like a second order effect here as well, which is advertising supported media has to be within certain rules because at some point advertisers will bail, right? If the media is too extreme, they're just going to walk away, right? Mm-hmm. Lean into the whole if advertisers paid for the internet. I want to keep on going down that rabbit
1: hole because that's fascinating. And I want to just like illustrate this, I think in this way where like, imagine all of the apps that we use on the internet that got us on the internet. Like it was Facebook for me back when I was in like middle school, perhaps also Reddit. Imagine if we had to pay as a user to access all of those things. How much less would the internet be adopted if that was the case? Like orders of magnitude, like the internet would, like the advertising model probably was a lubricant for the adoption of the internet. And I think that's what you really mean when you say advertisers paid for the growth of the internet. A theme in previous Bankless Podcasts, Antonio, that we talked about with Mark Andreessen and Chris Dixon and a few others is that the fact that native payments in the internet wasn't a thing until crypto was one of the main reasons why the current business models of the internet is what it is, where advertising is the only way to do it because that's how it paid for. But I think with what you're saying, that actually kind of argues against that, where- No, like if we had native money in the internet before the advertising model, we probably still would have had the advertising model yes. because of the free lubricant that is the onboarding of everyone because everyone's free.
2: Yeah. I feel like that's a fair take. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I agree with Chris Dixon and Mark about like 99% of reality. So mm-hmm. I don't want to like overly contradict them. And I do think the fact that there's like magic internet money that's programmable money and that Web3 can financialize itself is very interesting and unique. That said, I don't totally buy the story that now because we have native internet money, there's subscription models that are viable that weren't before. I have been hearing about micropayments solving the publisher problem for like 15 years, (laughs) right? We've (laughs) had micropayments before. We've had startups that do this before. It's not about Even though obviously stuff on chain is better than some of the fiat stuff, it's the emotional decision cost of like, do I want to pay 25 cents for this article all the time? People just don't think about it that way. It's like a mental toll. Even if you made it like a one-click thing, humans just don't think about media that way. And that said, I do think the blockchain makes other business models viable that weren't viable before. But I don't think just making subscriptions easier is kind of good enough to change the dominant business model of the internet. No. So
0: Antonio, that's a little bit about ad Grock. And I want to bring kind of the next place that uh, you visited in your journey, which is Facebook into the story, because for all of the good, and I think for the first, like, I don't know, the birth of web one and web two, all of this advertisers paying for the internet thing, we only saw the upside, right? We only saw the benefit. We only saw more and more people getting connected. And I remember back in the day when Facebook was like, a beacon of hope. It's the social graph. It's how we bring world peace and connect everyone (laughs) together. Sounds like you worked at Facebook,
2: but okay, yeah, yeah. (laughs) but like I heard
0: it, and like I believed a portion of it. I remember kind of my first time logging into Facebook, and it was just a magical experience. Here's everyone is here. Like, isn't this amazing? This is what the internet can do. That wasn't possible in web one. So that's all of the good. But as we said, it's also a double-edged sword So advertisers paid for the internet, but also advertisers paid for the internet Right? Mm. Like, there's a problem with that. kind of own it And we started to see, I think, the negative effects of that over maybe the last 10 years. But tell us about how your experience with Facebook fed into that story, kind of what you saw, and maybe some of the negative side of this attention-based
2: economy that we created on the internet. Yeah, yeah. I mean... (sighs) we should distinguish there's different types of advertising, right? The rise of what I think broadly you'd call programmatic advertising was something that changed the course of human history. I think I can get out. And it's a bigger story than just Facebook. I mean, it had impacted Facebook because I was one of the people that helped bring it to Facebook, but it's a bigger story. What do I mean by that? So again, let's go back into the mist of time. A lot of internet monetization or the ad system was very skeuomorphic, to use a in term, of what the newspaper business was like. You know, if you look at you know, display ad on the right-hand side of an online publication, it looks like a newspaper ad. That's intentional because that's what it was modeling. In fact, literally the first display ad was then called Hotwired, now called Wired Magazine, and it was built out as if it was a print ad because they had no other model. That And you still have terminologies like insertion order. That comes from the print age because they would insert an ad into the, the print of a thing. That's still referred, the I.O. is still how you buy an ad. In any case, so that was the ad world in which you had the New York Times or Wired with a sales force go to an advertiser and say, hey, we don't have much tracking or attribution. Like, we don't know how well the ad's gonna perform, but we're just gonna charge you for the medium. By the way, we own the audience, right? If you wanna address techies in the mid aughts right you basically had to buy an ad in in wired.com there's nowhere else to actually target those users so what did programmatic advertising do and this is where i wish i could take the camera to our whiteboard wall because i would walk you through schematics but basically how it worked is rather than wired or or new york times saying here we have a captive audience like pay up right pay us 30 dollars per thousand ads which is kind of a lot of money you had somebody like facebook or somebody like the google display market you know uh, ad exchange saying you know what how about we actually track individual users when they come to your website, right? So if you're an e-commerce guy, A user is going to come to you, you're going to cookie the user, you're going to fire a bunch of pixels to a bunch of other sites, and then you can actually target that user in all sorts of different places, right? If you've got a techie user that comes to your blog or comes to your gadget store, I can target them anywhere. I don't have to pay $30 per thousand ads at Wired, I can target them anywhere throughout the internet, right? And so what you've done is you've unbundled the audience from the publisher, and the publisher here is just the person who produces the media, whether it's wired.com, Facebook, wherever, they're all publishers in the ad tech sort of imagining of this, right? decoupling the audience from and breaking it out of the publisher is what basically wrecked the mainstream media, right? That's why New York Times has managed to transition to subscriptions, but local news is basically dead, because all they would do is sell ads against what was a captive audience, which was the local market. But again, if that audience has been decoupled, like you the publisher no longer own this, actually the ad exchange and ultimately the first party data the advertiser has owns it, then that just changes the whole dynamics. Never mind that Facebook has actually upstreamed, to use a Larry David term, the actual media, right? Because a lot of the inbound that went to a New York Times or whatever else actually came from Facebook. So you could run the ad, A, you rip out the audience. Like the New York Times audience is no longer magical. I can find them on Facebook too. And by the way, they're actually, they spend more time on Facebook than they do on the New York Times, right? That was the death blow of like conventional ads driven media. And so that programmatic ads technology changed everything, right, really. That's fascinating. And like, I think a lot of people would say,
0: wrecked it in a good way. Because now it allows, maybe that's another double-edged sword, but now it allows anybody to kind of create a platform And it disrupts the gatekeeping media that sort of were the gatekeepers of truth and the gatekeepers on what you see and what you hear and all of these things. And it opens this out, it it democratizes the internet. This is very much the web two vision still and still
2: feels like it's a good thing. I mean, I think so. I agree with you, but it depends how you feel about the New York Times. There's, there are some who still yearn for the days of yore in which you had a human editor deciding what Americans read every day. Not everyone looks well upon the, you know, the algorithm as if that's the problem or whatever. It depends how you look at it. But yeah, I mean, the problem I think with the Facebook model, right, is again, what Chris Dixon calls the take rate. The problem with Facebook, like yes, you've democratized things. You can run a Facebook page that would have a level of reach that it wouldn't before. But Facebook sits there and takes all the cash off the table, right? Facebook kind of does sit there and intermediate The ad spend in a huge way. And, you know, if Web3 has any promise, it's pushing the value to the edges, to the users, to the brands, to the creators. It's not having some like vampire squid sitting in the middle of it, right? Hoovering up 70 cents of every dollar that goes through the system, which is more or less how it works now. So that's the, yeah, that's the bigger downside, I would say. So Facebook, as the
1: intermediary between users and advertisers, I would assume that when we talk about their take rate, that they're trying to capture as much value as possible because they're a business. That's what they do. And so basically they're eking out all the value that advertisers are getting from reaching their audience yeah. there's some like profitability there but then Facebook is probably collapsing that profitability up to approach like zero percent of like value to advertisers mm. is that a fair take or is that not right
2: well let's get a little technical you're not talking ad tech until you have a bunch of three letter acronyms in the mix so let's include some three letter acronyms which might be educational so there's some key concepts when it comes to advertising and they're not even that complicated but things like customer acquisition costs right so cac or like lifetime value ltv Mm -hmm. and cac is like what does it cost me to get that user to come in the door and become a paid user it could be an ad or it can be by the way running a discord community like zynga back in the battle days of farmville used to run communities as well right that's Mm -hmm. a form of marketing you don't pay for it as paid media but it's it costs you something because you have a community manager. So how much does it cost you to bring a user into your door? And then you know, to be blunt, how well can you monetize them going forward? What is their LTV? Because some of they're gonna churn out. So how much money do they spend over what time period, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're a business and you're advertising and trying to drive growth, your LTV has to be higher than your CAC, right? If that ratio is above one, you're happy. If it's below, it isn't. And that, like, looking at it from a very mercenary point of view, every company's a marketing company that has a side hustle, which is how they drive users down the funnel. But for example, Uber was profitable, I think, for the first quarter of this year. Their LTV was not better than their CAC for 15 years, right? That number was less than one. Mm-hmm. and that, that's what basically, you know, and, and of course they had to tie, tie that over with speculative capital. Don't even ask me what that ratio looks like in web three <laughs> right <laughs> there. But of course, if money is free, CACs are zero, who cares, right? I can just invent this token and give it to users to use my product. Of course, I think those days are over and I think people have to start looking very seriously at what their CACs are. But it's not quite true that Facebook can just squeeze the market, right? Because if my acquisition costs get too high, I have to either pass the savings on to the user right but maybe there's an open market in which i don't have pricing power and then facebook gets screwed i just stop spending money on facebook Mm. facebook has competition by the way Mm. i can also spend on google now i can spend on apple there's the open web right facebook isn't the only game in town anymore and so they can't quite do it arbitrarily right Uh you said um Every company is a marketing company that has yes. a side gig. I love how yeah. meta that is.
1: Basically, what you're saying is like Uber's side gig is yes. moving people around. You know, Apple's side gig is
2: making iPhones. Why is every company an advertising company? Can you unpack that a little bit? Because if you sit there and talk to their marketing teams, that's how they, that's how they view the world, right? What's called the marketing funnel, right? Like, oh, the user comes in here, sees an ad, sees a tweet, installs the app, goes into the app spends money and then churns out. Mm-hmm. That's the central metaphor of marketing, mm-hmm. right? That is what determines the success or failure of your business. And if you talk to the marketing teams, like I used to t- talk to the gaming marketing teams at Facebook back in the day, they'd trot out the PM They'd talk to the quarterly business review. They knew their customer acquisition costs out to four decimals, right? Like Zynga back in the day, all it was was a quantitative exercise in funnel dynamics. And then it would just have studios pumping out games for the sake of running. And to be honest, every Web 2 game basically followed that model. And Web 3 games, if they're going to be successful, will need growth teams whose Mentality is that right? That's absolutely fascinating. Yeah, Antonio, can you take the listeners and me and Ryan
1: into your shoes during your time at Facebook? Oh god, yeah. pre ad exchange, <laughs> during ad exchange, post yeah. ad exchange. Like, what was the culture of Facebook yeah. like? Did Facebook as a company understand the trajectory of where they were going when they were making the ad exchange? Can you just like tell that story a little bit?
2: Yeah, sure. From what I understand, I saw friends there, it's a very different company than it is now. I joined, I guess, it was employee 2000 or so. And then in terms of actual engineer, it was probably eight or 900. They only had 25 product managers for the entire company. We would fill like a small conference room. I was a product manager officially. And I was the first product manager on the ads targeting product. They'd never had like a formal roadmap. The engineers would just ship whatever random thing. Ads was kind of a ghetto. Like, you know, Zuck is his S1, which is the IPO document said, you know, we don't build services to make money, we make money to build services. And that was kind of true. Ads has never really been a focus, right? It was this necessary evil. We were in like a crappy part of the building. Our desks were shitty, the carpets were stained. We were not in the nice part of the building or any of that stuff. And the ad system, to be blunt, didn't work. I remember the first thing I did is I logged into the main dashboard that only we could see because it was pre-IPO. And you know, the CPMs were like 17 cents. CPM, again, another acronym, cost per mill. it's cost per thousand impressions. It's basically the cost per square foot of media inventory. It's how every publisher thinks of itself like every time i I have a thousand experiences how much money do i make right Mm. that is like the basic number that every publisher needs to know if they don't know it they need to get an attribution system and figure it out because they're not you know, playing, you know, a real monetization game. So, you know, I logged in at 17 cents and it's just like my boss is like, come up with a targeting roadmap. We've never had one, best of luck. And, um, you know, we tried basically using, it. there's so many things kind of wrong with the way I think the public perceives Facebook. So I might attack them one after another in a very Mythbusters fashion. Sure. One is that like your Facebook data is so valuable. It is in some very high level and second order ways, but in the very simplistic way of, oh, they're gonna target the thing I did on Facebook. No, it is not, right? Uh, the persistent rumor that Zuck is listening to me through my phone, okay, even assuming that's true, which by the way, you would see on the network bandwidth, because you'd have this constant call going to Zuck, like it's impossible <laughs> to not listening to you all the time. But it- Leaving that aside, how often do you actually say, oh, by the way, I'm in market for a flight to Boston leaving February 3rd and coming back February 6th, and I don't want to pay more than $600. When the fuck do you ever say that? You never say it, right? (laughs) And this whole biz, oh, I talked about the cat with my girlfriend and I saw cat food ads. Yeah, because you looked up cat food literally an hour before that, that's why, (laughs) right? Or your girlfriend did, and here's where your data does get used a little bit. There's a product called Lookalike Audiences, which doesn't get talked about much. It's one of the most successful products that Facebook ever launched. I wasn't involved with it, but I was there when it started. And what that means is you two guys are probably very similar to each other you're probably like a high coefficient edge on whatever social graph you're a part of. If David does the thing, then we might show Ryan an ad for the same thing. And it won't be as good as showing it to the Davids of the world, right? Because maybe you're not exactly like David, but it's definitely way better than random chance, right? And that's one of the biggest problems advertisers have is like, here's my million, to use Web3 language, here's my NFT whales, right? And this is, I'm sure a problem that like OpenSea has and they trying to address, here's my NFT whales. Like I know how to sort of address them, right? When they come on site or send them NFTs, but give me like another million like them, right? So, create a similarity metric in order to do that. So your data gets used to do that, basically, to a large extent. But again, the things you do, like we literally spent a year trying to input. I actually called it Project Jodiso after Spanish Sausage. We were literally feeding it to the Sausage Grinder of like literally everything you posted, everything, everything we could legally use, right? Would it actually improve like the interest targeting system that we had? And it didn't. It didn't move the needle at all. And the key unlock, and again, it's not like some brilliant insight, right? Because I knew about the ad tech world a little bit, but most of Facebook at the time did not. I mean, now they're pros, of course, but at the time, almost nobody in Facebook ads had worked in ads, right? So I'm like, hey, dude, like, there's this whole outside world of programmatic advertising that I know you guys don't know about, but I come with good news, right? What we should do is actually join to the outside world of data and rather trying to use the fact that you liked Starbucks a year ago and sell you coffee, which is stupid because it isn't, it's not a signal to anything, we should use the fact that you put a 300 $100 tent at REI in your shopping cart and abandoned it an hour ago and we should show you an ad for that tent for the next two days and see if you convert and see if the click-through rates go up at all, which of course they did, right? Not only did the ad bid come for it because it's a $300 tent, they're gonna make 20% margins up. They're willing to pay 60 bucks a pop to get you to buy the damn tent, right? So they're willing to bid a lot for it. And secondly, the actual click-through rate, right? I mean, this is the whole experience you've all had. You go browse the internet, you see an ad for your favorite beard oil or whatever the hell it is in in Instagram and you click on it one in 20 times, 5% CTR, great. That's orders of magnitude higher than the click-through rates were when I joined Facebook, right? And that's the power of data. Not that it's magical. I can't turn you into a zombie. I can't force you to vote for Trump. I can't, (laughs) like ads don't work that well, but as a statistical phenomenon, can you make it go from a 1% click-through rate to a 2% click-through rate, thereby doubling your traffic, right? Like that's a big jump. Yes, you can. That said, 98% of people are still gonna completely ignore the ad because it's just mis-targeted and whatever. Like ads are still a statistical fluke, but you can make them be less fluky with data, right? Mm -hmm. And so that was the key unlock for Facebook. That's like, you know, we're not gonna be a walled garden. In some way or another, we're gonna take first party data, which is the valuable data, and then use that to inform ads on Facebook. That was one of many things that happened, by the way. That wasn't the only thing at Facebook. That's what made Facebook into the behemoth that it is today.
0: I mean, but that's crazy. What that is, is it's just like a, a massive professionalization a massive, like, you just scienced the hell out of it, basically. (laughs) Well, we
2: copied Google, to be clear. I literally, the FBX actual integration docs, I literally had Google's docs open (laughs) with basically writing like a simplified version of it. But yeah, whatever. Yeah, sure, basically. One thing I just want to clear out in that whole story is because there is this sort of persistent
0: thing. I've heard so many people in my life, friends and such, tell me that Facebook or Twitter or someone is listening to them. (laughs) Can you clear that up? Clear there, you better the belly of the beast. So that doesn't, yeah. you're telling us that doesn't happen.
2: No, no, no. In fact, I wrote an entire Wired piece about it. And in fact, I went on um, one of the NPR podcasts, the, the Money Show, whatever it's called. Planet Money. Yeah, Planet Money. And which I came on and gave my spiel. At this point, I've just given up, but they actually interviewed a set of people, all of them had the same like cat food with the girlfriend story or whatever. And they basically like interviewed, like grilled them for minutes and figured out what it actually was, how it was they actually got. And there was always some mechanism. They had actually Google searched for it or the girlfriend had looked it up or they had used a loyalty card at Petco or something, which by the way, can be joined to your online experience. So there was some more conventional means of targeting that they just weren't familiar with. That was correlated with yes, talking about cat food, but no, I mean, think about it at it right like imagine you would have to have basically like the phones aren't good enough to do the ml on your phone so you'd basically have to feed the audio like a siri speaker to like facebook you'd see it in your network like it's impossible just it's just not possible So the
1: punchline here is that uh, the claim is that my phone, which is sitting on my desk, is listening to me and it's going to interpret what I'm saying out loud in this room. Yeah. And it's going to find me a product to sell me as a result of that data. Yeah. What you're actually saying is that, no, I'm actually feeding it data directly Correct. through my internet path. <laughs> yes. And it's just using the data that I'm already sending outbound. Correct.
2: That was the theme of my Wired piece. It's like, Facebook doesn't need to listen to your phone. You would just give it the data. You're doing that stuff yeah. on the
0: website already, right? Okay. So when you first joined Facebook back in 2011, right, there was just a field of opportunity here. Yep. Just more things to science. You just had basically nothing at Facebook and you kind of like can turn that and create metrics and, and quantify it and yep. um, just continue to turn through it. I'm just curious, your perspective, I was like, Are we at the end of that? Have we squeezed all of the juice out of attention and like there's nothing left to squeeze? Like how much more efficient can this form of advertising that the social media behemoths have discovered and implemented, how much more efficient can we get? Yeah,
2: you know, we're at the end of a long saga. I mean, that's part of the reason why i've made various jumps in my career um let me just rattle through some of the list of things that facebook shipped that like completed the picture so one is obviously much better targeting that was part of it two better ad units facebook ads used to be these little stupid postage stamps on the right hand side right now you have these much more compelling in feed or even on instagram beautiful you know things that look like organic posts you had what's called attribution right so back in the day when i joined facebook you'd click on a facebook ad you'd go off facebook Facebook had no idea what was going on. They have no idea if you bought the thing, like no idea whatsoever. And what attribution is is basically it's closing the causal loop of like, oh, did they buy the thing, <laughs> and let's use that to inform whatever the media experience is that we're trying to optimize, right? They didn't have that, mm-hmm. and then they, you know they just got smarter about mobile. A bunch of stuff happened, right? But a lot of those adaptations have gotten to the point where there's not that much alpha left in ad tech as a thing. Like VCs aren't funding web two ad tech anymore. There's one last thing I want to mention. You skipped a couple steps in my trajectory a little bit. I worked at one company, not to plug them or anything. I no longer. Hold shares, but a company called Branch Metrics, which is an attribution company, Web2. It's one of the biggest independent attribution companies. It has competitors, of course, Apps Flyer, Adjust, et cetera. But basically, what they do is what you need in web two, right? Like you need a data Switzerland, like say you're the advertiser, David, right? Like you don't, like speaking of trustlessness, the ad tech world is completely trustless before that term was invented. You don't trust Google and Facebook, right? And so you want somebody to grade their homework and tell you like, yeah, okay, Facebook says they showed all these ads, but how many of them actually bought the thing? So tell me how many of them bought the thing and how much I spent on Facebook to get them to buy those things and how much are those things worth? And should I spend more money on Facebook or not, right? So you will have a relationship to an attribution system like branch or app or adjust or whatever that tells you that and half their value is the fact that they're not google and facebook right that they're checking that Mm -hmm. other person's homework right like auditors of sorts, effectively and you know we're jumping ahead a little bit but if you know when i get asked like how did you come up with the spindle idea it's so weird you web 2 web 3 blockchain it's like dude i just asked myself the question like what in web 2 should be rebuilt along blockchain lines like what is basically Mm -hmm. trustless basically permissionless, requires system-wide consensus, and is responsible for large sums of money moving around and establishing like a ground truth. Attribution is, that's what, right? So the branches of the world should probably live on as blockchains if they were being designed from the ground up now.
0: We're going to spend some more time on attribution, but just to define that a little bit more, like attribution is just, did they buy the thing? Why is completing the circuit and did they buy the thing actually important when you're kind of sciencing the heck out
2: of, like, your your ad spend. Because if you look at the entire media funnel, right, the the human internet experience is varied and chaotic and frantic and all over the place, right? Like, you, you watch a Joe Rogan video, you engage with a tweet, you watch a YouTube video, you scroll your Instagram feed, then you buy a thing, right? And so then, like, time's arrow goes forward, but attribution goes backwards. So you bought the thing. What led to it? Was it the incremental value of Joe Rogan mentioning the thing? Was it the brand's channel on the youtube video you saw was it just the tweet and the offer of a 10% off code what was it like what was the co- like without it you're just in a world of chaos of data of randomness right actual- without it you don't
0: have enough you know information to even make decisions as to you know what's effective and what's not you're
2: basically flying blind you have no idea what to do even if you have levers to pull you don't know which one to pull without it
0: so when we asked antonio about like kind of what's the double-edged sword of like you know facebook social media the negative side of things right um you said the take rate you said they've become a monopoly and they're extracting too much and the rent's too high and all of these things right and that's what dixon says that's what like i think we hear that right there are some other things that people point to as problems with big social media though and let's you know talk about maybe two of them. The second is, you introduced earlier in this episode, the concept that was new at the time in Web2, which is the concept of a cookie. The concept of us being able to, us being kind of the app or the service or whatever, track what you do, not just across our app, but across other apps on the internet. And this has been pointed to as another problem, another, I guess, externality of the Web2 internet and Web1 internet is these things called cookies, and nobody has privacy on the internet anymore. What's your take on that? How do you respond to that? Is that a problem?
2: Yeah, privacy is a complicated issue. Um, there's a lot you can say about it. It's a relatively novel invention, didn't appear in the dictionary in our modern sense until the 19th century. Most of the case law is actually from the 20th century. It's not mentioned in the constitution even once, although of course it's implicit in the Fourth Amendment. You know, The right to live as a stranger among strangers right, was a very obvious reaction to the urbanization of life. Right? The fact that we left traditional small villages and suddenly we were living among strangers and we felt we needed some redoubt against that. You know, If you ever live in a small village and one of the chapters you skipped over in my bio, I once lived on a small island northwest of Seattle, off grid in a yurt. I literally bought a piece of land and lived like a hermit on this thing. If you live in a small community, nobody has privacy, right? Not only that, it's not considered a social good. If you live like a recluse, if I had lived like a true recluse and had told nobody anything about me, didn't establish relationships... Like, it wouldn't be a good thing. You'd be like a weirdo, right? There's no GDPR on Orcas Island, right? Northwest of mm-hmm. Seattle, right? Everyone is kind of in your business. But of course, the break on that is like, well, it's a community, right? You can't be nasty to people because you have to see them in the checkout line the next right. day, right? And this is just how human life works. Unfortunately, these are the things that we don't have online, which is why media drives us completely crazy, which I think it does, right? Um, so yeah, so privacy has to exist in a very real way. But I think the way that the privacy discourse goes, particularly from people who tend to advocate like privacy maxis and the the revealed preferences of actual users, I think tend to diverge, right? Yes, there are people who want to remain forever anonymous online for reasons that they want, but that's not how most people want to live. Most people like cookies because they don't want to log into every site they go to. They want to remember that. Oh, yeah, this. There's no state in HTTP, right? Remember, the cookie was a hack because in HTTP protocol there was no ID being passed, so they had to write a file to the browser. So it's a very early hack to make identity happen because you don't want to log into your bank literally every single time you go, right? So most users do not delete their cookies every day, although they could, because it just degrades the experience in a big way, and that's the reality of it. Privacy. I mean, you talk about it as this absolute right because that's how you posture o- online, but the reality is it's more of a commodity that you trade for something else, right? Mm. You trade a little bit of privacy for convenience. Like I let Amazon see all of my credit card transactions because I don't want to enter the damn credit card every time I buy a thing, right? And I even use Amazon Pay on other sites, which means they get that data. They know other places that I'm buying as well, but you know what? I hate entering my credit cards, I'm just gonna do it, right?
1: And also curation, right? Like if we give them a bunch of data, they can curate. Like I want sure. Spotify to have all of my music data because I want Spotify to give me the best artists that I don't know. Right. I would totally give up that privacy for better music.
2: Right, and I want to sync it to my device and my yeah. Tesla and this computer. And like, yeah. I don't care that you know that I owe three devices. Like I'm happy to not log in all the time and have all mm-hmm. my music stored there. You know, you trade it for community, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you guys probably found me on Twitter, right? This relationship would not exist if I didn't expose my life on Twitter in some way. And that's often bad. I get into, I get dogpiled or whatever, but. It, Net, it's pretty good. Like I, I haven't stopped using it. I did not go to Mastodon because Elon bought it, right? And I, I don't think anyone actually did. And everyone's back, right? But that's the thing, right? And so it's not this absolute thing like, oh, we have to design for like the Edward Snowden use case of like an enemy of the state who's fleeing three different intelligence agencies. We must design the internet around that. It's like, I mean, you can do that, right? Like we had PGP, pretty good privacy back in the day, probably before your time, but there was this whole cryptography craze in like email. And I doubt that ever got used by anybody at any scale, because most people don't actually want to live their lives that way. And so I'm I'm not saying, I mean, again, some measure of privacy obviously is good. I'm just saying it's, you know, it's it's a spectrum. It's not a binary and there's no solutions. There's trade-offs. So what is the trade-off that we're doing with privacy, right?
0: I think that's interesting. I think that's a really good perspective. I do think that, that like the problem with privacy comes in and a lack of privacy among the public is sort of related to centralization. It's when you have aggregators that can use all of that data to do something Repressive against a certain segment of the population, and this was like I know you said there was not privacy in the you know the Constitution, except for maybe like the Fourth Amendment. Fourth Amendment. And this is about unreasonable search and seizures, right? This is about the state having the ability to just look at your stuff and take it whenever they want, right? And that is some of the worry with mega corporate entities that, you know, Facebook has what, like 2.5 billion people on it, something like that. It's a massive data repository and it has information about it. If you're in a, you're in a community and everybody in the community knows your business, who cares? I mean, that's a community of a thousand. But if you're part of a a population of 2.5 billion and subject to a repressive state regime and something you post online gets routed to you and then you get disconnected from your economy as a result and your bank account gets frozen. That's where we start to get into dystopia. Yeah, I'm just wondering your reaction on that. I mean, like you probably agree like us that that would be a a pretty bad state to get into, but do you have any takes on that?
2: Yeah, I mean, again, privacy is weird. you can get into, like, I did a Substack post on, like, the difference between Web 2 and Web 3 privacy, right? There's this notion of what's called contextual privacy, right? Privacy exists. This is due to a Stanford academic who's published a lot about it. Privacy exists within a certain context. So, like, take, for example, what's considered private in Web 3, which is very strange in Web 2, right? Like, imagine Amazon published to a public ledger everything you bought on Amazon, right? You would have a total freakout. And yet, that's how Web 3 works by default, right? But everyone's like, oh, well, but it's pseudonymous, so it's fine. I mean, it's sort of pseudonymous, right? If I want to make the FBI show up at my door, I'll touch an OFAC wallet, and they'll, they'll show up way faster. Faster than anything else I can do in the conventional, uh, traditional. So it's not even that private actually being on chain, but yet somehow people mentally say, well, you know what, I can always just get another wallet ID, but everything about that wallet is known online, right? Which I would never do on web two. And so I think it's just, it's a question of how you approach it, right? If you violate what is the context of that privacy, you feel violated, but as long as you play roughly along the rules, it's kind of okay. But, yeah, getting back to your question of, like, what if, like, you're an enemy of the state and they try to crush you and, like, take away your banks and all the rest of it. It's possible. Yeah. I mean, you definitely saw it in terms of, like, how deep in the stack does it go? Does Cloudflare pull your blog offline? Like All these debates have been had. Like, I think they were hosting, like, a Nazi site or something at one point. And, you know. Cloud a wondered, do I pull the plug on the Nazi side or not? It's a good question. It's a big debate. I don't claim to know the answers. But I would say I think you're right to distinguish between there's one didn't have a government as an enemy, like men with guns show up and stick you in jail, versus Facebook trying to help, you know, REI sell you a sweater, right? That is just a different scale of threat. And it's hard to imagine cases where literally all of American capitalism conspires to ruin you, right? <laughs> yeah. The reality today
1: is that five corporations control the entire world of social media. They own our names, they restrict our content, they monitor our every move. And their time is up thanks to our sponsor, DSO. DISO is a layer one blockchain built from the ground up to decentralize and scale social networks. With DISO, you can own your own identity, content, and social graph and take it with you across hundreds of applications already built on the censorship resistant DISO blockchain. Deeso's storage advantages make it finally possible to build infinite state applications that can efficiently store and index large amounts of content and data fully on-chain. Deso also offers multiple crypto-native monetization primitives for developers and creators, including social NFTs, social DAOs, social tokens, and social tipping. So, in order to experience the social layer of Web3, go to Deso.com and claim your username. That's Deso.com. If you've been listening to Bankless, you know that we're fans of the modular blockchain thesis. The idea that blockchains will separate execution from data availability and consensus, allowing all three to become the best versions of themselves. And Fuel has built the fastest modular execution layer in the industry. By supporting parallel transaction execution, Fuel unlocks significantly faster throughput for the web 3 world. Fuel also goes beyond the limitations of the EVM with its own Fuel VM which is more efficient and optimized, opening up the design space for developers. And lastly, Fuel brings a powerful developer experience with its own domain-specific language, Sway, and a supportive toolchain called Fork. With Fuel, you can have the benefits of smart contract languages like Solidity while adopting the improvements made by the Rust tooling ecosystem, letting the Fuel development environment go beyond the limitations of the EVM. If you want to learn more, there's a link in the show notes to see how you can get involved with the Fuel network. The Layer 2 era is upon us. Ethereum's Layer 2 ecosystem is growing every day and we need Layer 2 bridges to be fast and efficient in order to live a Layer 2 life. Across is the fastest, cheapest, and most secure cross-chain bridge. With Across, you don't have to worry about high fees or long wait times. Assets are bridged and available for use almost instantaneously. Across's bridges are powered by UMA's optimistic Oracle to securely transfer tokens between Layer 2s and Ethereum. Across Across's critical ecosystem infrastructure and Across V2 has just launched. Their new version focuses on higher capital. Capital efficiency, layer two to layer two transfers, and a brand new chain with Polygon, all while prioritizing high security and low fees. You can be a part of Across's story by joining their Discord and using Across for all of your layer two transferring needs. So go to Across.to to to quickly and securely bridge your assets between Ethereum, Optimism, Polygon, Arbitrum, or Boba networks.
0: The last piece I just wanted to hear about so we talked about kind of the take rate being a negative of, you know, the Facebook social media monopoly and then loss of privacy. The other piece that's kind of circulated more recently is kind of this, um, the social media platforms becoming the new arbitrators
2: of truth. Oh, God. Yeah. Don't get me started. I did a whole post about it today. I got so pissed off. Yeah. yeah, Okay. Yeah. Well,
0: <laughs> tell us about that. Is that another negative byproduct here? Do you see this? <laughs> if
2: this was Rogan, like the guy would be pulling up the tweet right now. Um, uh, maybe you should share. It. <laughs> well, what tweet? We can make it. It's Rogan. one that we I posted this morning. It? All right. I'll pull this up. I only tweeted like one thing this morning. It was me being kind of a dick and saying, you know, haha, I was right. So I've been very consistently skeptical of what we now call the content moderation regime, right? The thought that platforms should be arbiters of truth. I've always been very skeptical of. To be clear, I am not a free speech, you know, absolutist. I think they should be able to ban porn or hyperviolent content. I certainly think they should ban any sort of CSAM or, you know, Child abuse material like that should obviously be crushed by all means possible. But you know we're talking outside of porn and violence and obviously illegal activity, right? That's really the realm of debate. The rest of it nobody really who's saying debates, right? I've always been skeptical of it for two reasons. One, as someone who's been inside the machine and open dashboards in which the numbers are all in the billions, I just felt it was impractical. You just wouldn't be able to do it at scale in every country in the world. It just wouldn't be possible, right? And then secondly, even assuming you had some regime that sort of did it, at some point it would be ideologically captured by one side or the other. I'm not necessarily pointing figures to one side of the political spectrum, but there would be a contingent that says, you know what, this is actually good speech, this is bad speech, and it would be difficult to apply anything like an objective standard to it. And that, frankly, in my opinion, is what's happened, right? Like, ask yourselves this. Do you feel safer now? Like, are politics less polarized now that, you know, Facebook is the arbiter of truth and actually has, like, an oversight board that sits in a closed conference meeting and, like, reviews decisions? Do you feel better now that, like, the Supreme Court of Free Speech is now sitting inside a conference room at Twitter or Facebook? It makes me feel terrible. Right. It's sucks. Uh, <laughs> And I've been calling this since 2017. It's a terrible idea, actually. And it's not good, and it's not successful, and it's been a complete mess. Of course, you talk to these people like, oh, well, real content moderation hasn't been tried. You need to hire more people, do more things, do this and that. It's a joke. It's, it, what's the answer for that? You just don't
0: have the governance boards? You just like, it's just basic, you know, First Amendment kind of rights? Yeah, it's to yeah, speech, which,
2: anything goes? Which before, like, the reply guy chimes in, like, I understand Facebook doesn't have to abide by the First Amendment, but if you're arguing that they don't have to follow it, you're basically saying one of our most valued principles, some big corporation doesn't Doesn't have to follow. Right. Broadly speaking, a person of good faith who believes in the First Amendment wants more entities following it rather than fewer in society, right? But doesn't the algo itself also
0: have to be some sort of moderator of truth? Yes, Because it's going to surface what makes people more engaged. Because again, the unit of currency is attention and I can get more blocks of human time to sell to the highest bidder if I can get that human being to spend more time on my app. And so I'm going to program my algos for engagement and for rage and things that Maybe don't help the human being or the society in general. Like, what's what
2: about this line of criticism? So, two comments on that. I think you're right to hide the difference between freedom of speech and then reach. Those are different things. Okay. And I think there, there's a whole debate to be had there. The second thing I would say is there's a lot of focus on the algorithm. Like humans always have a fascination with like the robots getting out of control. Like in mythologies of the golem, and there's some fascination we have with we created a thing and it turned against us. Like, look, yeah, Frankenstein. Right. Right. And again i'm I'm dating myself i don't even engage in these debates anymore because it just pisses me off as you can tell but i I I also have a piece going back to 2017 just to cite the record by the way in which i said you know what if you think the algo is so important then explain whatsapp right whatsapp is just a messaging app there's no feed there's no algorithm it's end-to-end encrypted in theory like facebook does nothing to affect what you see and yet If you use WhatsApp in a country where it's popular, it's as crazy and ridiculous and shit posters and groups. It's caused violence in Brazil and Indian elections. Like it's been a force for kind of negative things in the world. There's no algorithm, right? Here's the problem. Humans have decided to refract their entire existence through this. And now everyone has one. Everyone, literally everyone has one. That is the problem. For podcast listeners, Antonio's holding up his phone. I'm holding up my phone. This is the problem. This little black mirror is the problem. We've wired everyone's brain to everyone else's, right? The algorithm might make it a little bit better or worse at the margin, right? But broadly speaking, I don't think that's the challenge, right?
0: Well, we're not going back from that though, right?
2: Right, right. We, I mean, who's willing to give away their little black device? <laughs> right, I mean, Luddism, right? The, the Butlerian Jihad, which is like this thing, this artifice in the Dune universe in which, oh, they supposedly gave up machine learning because it was apocalyptic, which is why you have these exciting knife fight scenes in Dune. It was obviously a fictional artifice. It's never happening, right? Mm -hmm. Here's the real problem. There's a truism in startups that like, everyone thinks that what's broken in a startup is like a technical problem because that's what's easy to fix. It's almost always a human problem, right? There's like that guy's an asshole or that guy's a bad manager or the product roadmap is wrong. There's always a human problem. And here's the problem. There is no technical solution. We're not going to have more and better content moderation is going to fix Facebook. We're going to fix the algorithm. That is all bullshit. I'm like, and like, I'm willing to make a bet. I'll bet anybody 10 ETH that like five years from now, you will not agree that things are better now because we have better content moderation. As in fact, you wouldn't agree that things are better now than they were four years ago when we started on this road, right? It, And that's a big bet because five years from now, 10 ETH is going to be worth a lot, right, David? (laughs) A heck of a lot. (laughs) Got to pump the back. I want to be
1: devil's advocate about moderation, content moderation, where like, okay, there's no such thing as like good content moderation. It's always like a trap. But if we just don't do content moderation and we just let like Twitter, Facebook be a complete public square and let the participants just say whatever they want to say, then you get spam attacked. You get bot attacked. There are... External third parties that will come in and manipulate the platform using whatever powers that they have, whatever technologies that they have. And then they become the content moderators because they silence dissident, they spin up puppet accounts. And so if you do not engage in content moderation, you just kind of enable some other third party to leverage your platform and then they become the content moderators.
2: Well, so to be clear, so content moderation, remember, I included things like, you know, nuisance accounts, pornography, violence, like a lot of things I'm for. I'm not anti-content moderation more broadly. I'm anti like disinformation or, or misinformation policing. The thought that in a developing situation like COVID or a war or whatever, that you're going to be able to discern God's own truth online I think is, is ridiculous as a premise. So I agree with you. Bot traffic is super annoying. I have all these crypto bots following me on Twitter like those should just be wrecked but what is the standard right now the United States of America at least it's what's the Brandenburg v. Ohio standard which basically if you actually are inciting violence like physical violence like let's go kick that guy's ass right now illegal pulled off the stage gone right which I'm absolutely happy with if you incite violence online you're out of here right so again I'm not a free speech absolutist if you have a canonical version of events of you know Various political stories or the origin of a certain disease or whatever it might be, I just don't think you can actually arrive to truth. Galileo would have been content moderated, right? Just to say a very clear historical example. Martin Luther would have been booted off Twitter. Ben Franklin would have been booted off Twitter. And he was in a non ship poster who wrote under 20 different names, right? He would have been booted off Twitter as well, right? What content moderation regime are you going to accept that Ben Franklin and Galileo would get caught in? That's the problem, right? Yeah,
1: 100%. And Tony, I want to come out of this rabbit hole and go down a different one. Sure. And this is where we can start to get into the blockchain, Web3
2: side of things. Sure. I'll be less agitated. I'm sure it's just one of these things that I like. I have fucking PTSD about. Mm-hmm. This is why I went back to tech because I got tired of fighting about it online. Totally. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. So I'm normally not like this, listeners. By the way, I'm normally a very agreeable person. <laughs> just don't mention content moderation. I like to both me, please. versions <laughs> myself. <laughs>
1: okay. I, I want to pick up the thread that we were talking about about how Amazon knows all of our consumer history, knows what yep. products we bought. And if they publish that information, we would be like upset. You would see all the the crazy things that I've purchased that I don't want the Bankless Nation to know that I purchased.
2: What are those, David? Just for the record, can you, can you <laughs> uh, share yeah, those I things? Know. <laughs> I know. i will just I'll, Instead,
1: I'll show you my NFT wallet and you can see all the <laughs> NFTs that I bought. Uh, and and, and, and so the, that, Wait, those the, are gotta be way more <laughs> embarrassing, David. <laughs> I know what NFTs you own, my friend. <laughs> uh, and so th- that's really the point, right? right? Amazon has all my data, keeps it private. I trust Amazon to keep it private the blockchain is all my consumer stuff is completely public and you wrote this post called the right to never be forgotten <laughs> and so i want to go down that rabbit hole can you talk about just like the inverse nature between consumer data and identity in Web 2 versus Web 3?
2: Yeah, yeah, let me just explain the title for a second, because some people might not get the reference. So under GDPR, which is the, the, the reigning European Union law, there's what's called the right to be forgotten. And the idea, like, if I were to summarize GDPR, and lawyers will freak out, but basically two things. Who owns the data about you, and can you delete it? That, those are basically the two questions. And deletability is a big deal in GDPR. And so the, the blockchain, given that the data is typically spread over thousands possibly of nodes all over the world, and nothing is really deletable in the real sense. It's completely flies in the face of GDPR. There's no way you can actually comply with GDPR if you had personal data on the blockchain. And so that's a little bit of a snarky reference in the title. And then yeah, the inverted nature of it is, I think we hinted at earlier in the podcast, which is web two is mostly real identity, right? In private centralized databases, in which what you do online and your financial holdings are private, right? Like that's a duality. Web three is the inverse. It is not the real you and that Unless you attach it to your ENS, you know, domain, I don't necessarily know what David Hoffman's wallet ID is. But assuming I figured out the wallet ID, I have literally every embarrassing thing you've ever done, at least with that wallet. Right. And somehow and So in both- just to unpack that a little bit more, yeah. David Hoffman.eth,
1: unequivocally my address. Yeah. My other address is I actually am the only person that knows that. Right. So that's the pseudonymous, right. right? And so what you're saying is like the status quo for an Ethereum address, Bitcoin address, is that you actually don't know the identity right. of the owner. But that is not true in web two because Amazon does know who exactly you are. Facebook does know exactly who you are.
2: Right. In many ways, Web 2 and Web 3 are analogous to each other. And in some ways, it's like the exact inverse. And this is one of those cases where it's the exact inverse. Yeah. And can you just okay. unpack the significance of that? Like, why is that a big deal? Well, I mean, if you're trying to comply with GDPR on chain, which we are, mm-hmm. <laughs> it, gets exactly. little, it gets a little squirrely. Um, you, you know, how, again, how do you, if you've got stuff that you've got on chain that you want to get rid of, like, let's say you applied the Web2 mentality to David Hoffman's mm-hmm. public wallet because you like the wallet. There's no way that you'd be able to delete those transactions that you ever own, some NFT that you mm-hmm. not found embarrassing. And the Web2 model, you would be able to delete that, right? Mm-hmm. So clearly the conception of what privacy means in the Web3 side is going to be weird. And where this really gets weird is that one of my theories, and you know, I'm curious what you guys think about it, is that. Web2 and Web3 are gonna coexist for a long time, Mm -hmm. right? We're not gonna have pure Web3 and pure Web2. If you look at examples like Reddit's NFT avatar thing, like the user doesn't even really know they have a wallet. Like it's cool, they can buy the thing, they can actually sell it on OpenSea, like they have full Web3 functionality, but by default, it just kind of seamlessly works and it's obviously non-custodial. You know, how do you square the two versions of privacy? Because like Reddit's gonna know who you are with that wallet, right? Right. They're gonna know your cookie ID, your login, and so you've merged the streams, right? And any system of analytics retribution similar to Spindle that spans the two worlds, will also be able to have to join those things to make sense of it, right? If you ask the question, how many guys came from Twitter, people came from Twitter and bought my NFT? Well, you've got to lose some of the pseudonymity on the Web3 site to answer that question, right? And so how do you manage that? That's the question.
1: I think the part of this article that really stood
2: out to me is like, there's going to be some institutions
1: out there that you're going to give your identity towards. Many, like crypto exchanges, have our government ID unequivocally. They know who we are through and through. And then Coinbase, Gemini, whatever your exchange is, you send money outbound from your account to an Ethereum wallet, which no one in the world knows who that Ethereum wallet is, Bitcoin wallet, except for you. And now Coinbase, because you just provided that information. And so if we're taking like a GDPR perspective, all of a sudden Coinbase is now able to map your nation-state identity to Ethereum addresses. And that, if we want to go back into the Web2 advertising model, to unpack that, like, well, now Coinbase can look at your consumer behavior on-chain. And it's got to be pretty valuable. Probably pretty valuable consumer behavior, all of this identity, especially as the world of the metaverse gets built out beyond financial use cases. All of a sudden we're talking about cultural use cases. And now Coinbase is the owner of so much data about you and consumer data, and maps right back to what we were talking about with the Facebook ad exchange. How is this gonna
2: play out? Cause this is like <laughs> hairy and delicate. Yeah, yeah, and you know, I'm not a big believer in applying cryptographic magic. Oh, we're gonna ZK this and that. It's like, no, there's a basic problem here, which is you have like a physical driver's license that's associated to a wallet ID, right? Yeah, I, I can tell you how I think it's gonna go down and the, the approach Spindle is taking, cause it's a problem that we face. Cause again, you know, we launched with Polygon, they had an NFT mint for the World Cup, and like, they wanna know like, how well did this tweet do on a conversion basis so we have to kind of join that a little bit the attitude we're taking is that and again we're going to be totally compliant with gdpr all the rest of it although i think we're going to have to have new regulation because gdpr kind of doesn't apply to web 3 basically we just delete the connection so like if you say you know what like i want out right like i just don't want to be tracked or you know if if Polygon, whoever offered the opt out, which by the way, they're going to have to like Web3 hasn't gotten the memo on privacy yet. Like if you're if and it's like nobody's in compliance. It's really weird because I'm like, "Uh, you know, at some point the EU regulators are going to show up. But if you want out of it, we just delete the match. Like, hey, that's it. Like we're going to disassociate like the browser cookie or whatever it is with a wallet ID. And it's as if this match never happened. Like that's done. You're as anonymous and pseudonymous online as you were before. Mind you, it kind of sucks for Polygon or if we eventually we work with Magic Eden or OpenSea or whatever, because they're not gonna be able to tell where you came from and and again, kind of target things towards you and offers that maybe you want. But yeah, if you really wanna be, you know, then you can do that, right? We empower users to do that. Yeah,
0: I don't know how that's all gonna resolve. It's very interesting. Like one thing that we know we need on the base, because, you know, David and I, we talk a lot about base protocols. On the base protocol, we do need a, a privacy option. You know, the internet has HTTP, it has HTTPS, it has unencrypted things, it has encrypted things. That is clearly not going to be a you know privacy layer on Ethereum, for example, but there will be like specialized layer twos like Aztec that are complete privacy and no one can see in them. And it's kind of like, you know, a black box and you're not leaking all this public data. But I'm curious, Antonio. And sorry, so, just, I, but out of curiosity, yeah. how
2: is the adoption going for the privacy chains?
0: I mean, not so well yet. Right. I think that this will also happen. Like it could also be a niche. Yeah. Right. So like there's. um there's certain protocols that I think are very important in that they are useful if things go really bad. For example, right, right. Like, I mean, the original framers put this Second Amendment rights. If your government goes evil and you need to take up arms and fight the government, then you have that right to do that. Right. Privacy could be one of those things where we sort of don't need it unless things go bad and a whole group, a whole population, feels like opting out, and then we have other alternatives. But if things are going well, if our governments aren't evil, if companies aren't preying on us, then maybe people don't opt into that. They don't need to opt into that so much.
2: It's kind of how I view it, but it's also early. Look, I get the message and, you know, I may or may not have an AR-15 in my closet as well, right? To invoke the Second <laughs> okay. Amendment option. But he, here's the reality, and I'm, I'm saying this completely descriptively, not normatively, not taking an opinion at all, but like this is the view from a Web2 boomer who's been like 10 years in this world. Privacy is never actually a product, Right that anyone actually kind of pays for, except for in extreme cases or when it comes to things like financial stuff, it's very hard to sell privacy as as a thing in and of itself. It typically has to be coupled to some other value creation that people are willing to pay for. I think we agree with that. I think
0: like we've seen like Zcash and these times haven't gotten much adoption but having that option is important. Beyond privacy though, can you tell us a bit more about this whole story? So we've gone through kind of what you've seen in social media, right? Coming out the other side and living with kind of like, living in kind of the ad tech world. So what do you see when you look at Web3 today and you've got a company that you spun up, it's called Spindle. Yep. And it's all around this problem of attribution, right? And before that, before you said what you said earlier in this episode, I don't think I really had a good definition of attribution. Yeah. But attribution is just, did they buy the thing? Right. You're tracking to see if they bought the thing. Yeah. So why are you doing this in Web3? Like, what did you learn from Web2? Why does Web3 even need this? Yeah. Can you
2: make the case for why attribution is important or good for Web3? Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, there's a few reasons why I got onto Web3, right? I mean, it's tremendously exciting. Like, to me, it's almost like deja vu of the excitement in Web2 10 years ago. And I I wrote a post about when the whole FTX thing blew up. That's like, Dude, guys, like, I know this is your first time going through it, but relax. Like, the the world comes back as, like, the first dot-com boom, like, wrecked the entire U.S. economy, right? It was way bigger than FTX, and there was so much hate against all these companies, right? Okay, can we just camp on that? Because a lot of people haven't, they didn't see that. So, does this feel like the dot-com boom bust? No, no, it's way smaller. It's like a way smaller hiccup. It's so much (laughs) smaller. You realize the NASDAQ lost 80% of its value in 2001 after the dot-com crash. Like, it wrecked. Lots and lots of people. This is small in the scheme of things, right? If if anything, it says that crypto is still relatively isolated. That the biggest, well, one of the biggest exchanges can blow up, and people aren't like literally losing their houses in Phoenix, right? Like it's, it was, it's not the mortgage crisis in two thousand eight. And I should also mention another thing to mention is, like, there's so much like what you would call wig history, like a sort of perfect idealized history of how things went down. Dude, I'm old enough to remember when Uber sounded like a stupid idea, which it was initially. It was literally only black cars running in two cities. The whole UberX concept didn't exist. Like it didn't work in some cities. Like it was not actually a great idea. Airbnb seemed like a dumb idea early on. Paul Graham has written an essay about it, right? They had to sell cereal at political conventions because nobody was using it because who the hell would sleep in some stranger's house? I was at Facebook when the ad system sucked. Like you literally could not, you could not sell Facebook ads because it was so shitty, right? So like everyone assumes that all these companies are always amazing and always a great and there wasn't like this drumbeat of hater aid going all the time. There was just like there is now in Web3, like all that hate was there and all the people who are like shitting on Web3 now who are going to have to like eat crow five years from now when it takes off, they're just going to disappear and never refer to it again. Just like everyone who hated Web2 kind of disappeared and never referred to it again. Right. This is just the eternal return of human innovation. So, you know, that part of it, I wouldn't worry so much about. What I like about Web3, though, is that it's like it is the Wild West, right? Like. We're like pioneering a new field as we build it, which you can't do in Web2 anymore. It's like boring SaaS, it's buying some other dumb shit on your phone. Like, there's nothing that radical, that new, that interesting, that exciting in Web2 anymore. And like, if the Web2 guys who are being Web3 like trolls are being honest with themselves, the smartest talent isn't going and working at some of these Web2 giants anymore. They're simply not, right? Do you know Dixon
0: describes it at Web2 as like sterile? It is. It feels like Disneyland rather than like
2: a real neighborhood. It is. And you know, Maybe Chris and I are having midlife crises because I'm old enough to remember Web 1 and Web 2 and that excitement of like, oh, there's this just like untrammeled frontier and you have to invent all this shit to make it work. And that just doesn't exist in Web 2 anymore. Like those companies became the man that there were once the rebels against. They just don't realize it. Right. And Web 3 is kind of that rebellious thing. Right. And so to me, it was exciting. But answering your specific question, which is like, why did I? Build spindle. Like I said, I looked at web two and said, like, what should be a blockchain? Something like attribution or, you know, some layer of shared state. And then I look at web three and like, what is totally missing? Attribution. Right. Like I got introductions to a lot of you know game developer and stuff. And like, hey, what's your CAC? Like, what's a CAC? Like, well, it's your customer acquisition cost. Like how much you paid to have that user come in the door. It's like, I don't know. We did an NFT drop. I'm like, okay, well, did you check and see if the guys who got the NFT? like converted more than the guys who didn't know why not (laughs) it's like well it's hard all we have is dune like we don't have a good way of querying the data we don't have data science like i don't know there was no technology there for and i don't mean to like being super critical of these people like they're just working with the tools they have but there's no tools there to actually to measure this and the problem is like in my opinion web 3 is not going to really take off in a big way until you have those tools because these are basic table stakes stuff on the web 2 side it's not rocket science right
1: yeah so Tell us that story. Can you give us a story of what is a spindle if it's maximally successful? What is the future blockchain world when we have this part of that world built out.
2: Let me sketch it out by maybe listing the questions that Spindle can answer. (laughs) And that might be an interesting way. Say you have, I'm not going to name individual companies because we may or may not be working with them. In any case, I don't want to feel like I'm plugging them. But let's say you have some Web3 game in which involves like some NFT game, like something like, well, just a site one, Crypto Unicorns or Zed Run, all these games on Polygon in which you buy and trade and breed NFTs, right? And you're wondering, okay, what is my LTV? Like how much money am I making off every user? And if I'm paying them to use the game, how much am I paying them? Is it a positive ROI? trade how long are they sticking around retention is a major problem right churn is murder like you literally go through the funnel they use the app and they drop out and if that churn rate gets above a certain amount like think of your app as a churn rate of 20 percent, that means you have to grow by at least 20 percent a month just to stay flat right that's how a mature company thinks about growth and i don't think a lot of web3 companies are thinking about that because they had such explosive growth they didn't have to but now that we're in crypto winter money isn't free users aren't using the app, they have to start asking themselves this question. So like, what is my retention rate? What does that mean, a retention rate? It's like, okay, I did an NFT drop or I had a Twitter social media campaign. I got 100,000 new users. How many stuck around a month later? If that number is 10,000 versus 90,000, One is a good app. The other, you're on the road to death. (laughs) You cannot survive a 90% churn rate for your magic cohort. You have to either fix something or go out of business because it's over, right? And just quantifying these sorts of things are just the V1 of Spindle. There's a bigger vision here, right? Which is, okay like if you think about how should user acquisition by which i mean there's a machine in which i put in money and i get users and more revenue right which has to exist for any media ecosystem to exist right doesn't have to be ads necessarily but there has to be some way to get users to come into your app right what does that look like going forward it's like well do we want to speed run the 10 to 15 years of ad tech history i was forced to live in or do we want to leapfrog to the right answer which is advertisers should be able to say look I'm a lending protocol, and I want people to come in and put liquidity into my exchange and have it stick around for more than a month. That's what I want. That's my target event. I'm the head of growth for Aave, Compound, whatever. That's my target. That's how I get paid. How do I do that, right? Spindle would help you answer that and structure that problem such that you can. So how does it work, right? Like, <laughs> just to get to, to details. Um, in the Web2 world, right? Like when you buy a thing on Amazon, like literally. A signal goes out to Facebook or to the Amazon attribution system saying, "Hey, David came in and bought this thing." Right? Great. How does it work on the blockchain side? It's like, well, usually that conversion event is on chain, right? It's like you literally did a currency swap on Uniswap, or you lent money to whoever, or you bought the NFT. And so what we do is basically carve out a subgraph of the blockchain and say, this is the conversion event. And so if you come and you buy the NFT on OpenSea, you buy the crypto unicorn or whatever it is, we capture that and actually index that event,
1: right? And and it's as simple as a single
2: transaction hash, that the event
1: is a hash,
2: right? In the happiest case, often the actual conversion event is a little more complicated, right? So like in a lot of these web two, three hybrids, like, the Polygon NFT mint they did two weeks ago for the World Cup, how it worked is you just signed the transaction and then they sent you the NFT so that you wouldn't actually have to pay gas fees because they didn't want users to get tripped up on having Matic, right? And so there it's a little weird because the transaction that, like, you didn't actually sign the transaction that gave you the NFT, but then we did a little bit of finagling there and we made it such that, okay, whatever. Like, the point is they got the NFT and that's what you want to track. And then, you know, using a little bit of clever front-end code, we could answer questions like, okay, how many Minters came from Telegram versus Twitter, for example? Or how many how many users did you lose on the landing page because the landing page sucked? Or maybe it didn't suck. Maybe they converted and they actually signed in with their wallets at an enormous conversion rate. But until you actually get what's called that user funnel together, you don't really know how well you're doing. All you see is like, I don't know, the Mint sold out or it didn't, right? And so without it, you're just in chaos and and darkness. And with an attribution system, you at least have some logic around the world. Can I sort of um, frame this a little bit differently and see if this kind of resonates
0: a little bit for listeners and for you, Antonio? Yeah. So I think some people listening to this in crypto, and there's an undercurrent in crypto who are a little bit anti-marketing anti-growth and so they hear some of what you're saying and they're like great another marketing person entering crypto that's all we need right Mm. like tracking our clicks awesome cool and optimizing every click and grabbing more of our attention that's certainly one view and i think that has um, been a view that's sort of why you're encountering you know not only haven't companies haven't had to but i think culturally like many crypto companies like don't want to. Mm. But let me counter that with another idea that I've been thinking of as I've learned about this. One of the reasons in 2022 we got in the mess we did with Celsius and with BlockFi and with FTX and others is because we were forced to funnel all of the growth of crypto into centralized intermediaries. And one of the big reasons was because we didn't have a growth engine working for DeFi and for NFTs and for quote-unquote real decentralized crypto. And they did. It was very easy for an FTX and a Sam Bankman-Fried and his growth team to track clicks using all of the traditional Web2 infrastructure and pump growth and benefit that way. It was very easy for them to do that. Very difficult for a protocol like Aave to do something similar for its lending and borrowing protocols. Why? Because they don't have the Web2 infrastructure. They don't have the attribution. They can't tell you how to attract new liquidity. The only thing they can do is do shotgun approaches like liquidity farming and giving away essentially like protocol value and doing it that way. That's very expensive. Yep. And guess what? If we don't improve in this area, we're going to continue to lose to Web2 2 centralized CeFi companies that do. And we all know what happens if we lose to CFI companies. That's another way of me thinking about this. And I'm wondering what you think about that take, Antonia.
2: Dude, that's exactly right. We're, we're actually hiring for a BD person Ryan if you want to join Spindle. You've made oh the God, you, I'm too you, busy. <laughs> you, You've made the perfect That is exactly the case for Spindle. That is exactly it, right? We're building a fully web3 native attribution system so that the truly web3 companies can actually do the growth that they need to do. Like it might sound cynical, but you're going to have to have a growth strategy of some sort that's more than just sprinkling NFTs and liquidity bonuses. And even if you do that, you're going to still have to track those and see where it works best and where it works less well, right? So yes, that is the goal. Let me ask you Ben Underlying concern.
0: Sure. Let's say we get this. It's good. We have attribution. We have some of the tools that Web2 had in Web3. How do we not make the mistakes that Web2 has made? All right. How do we not become them? We talk about this like all the time in Bankless, right? This is a Bankless movement, right? Do more without banks. But the question, always, the meta question in the back of our minds at Bankless is how do we go Bankless without establishing a new set of bankers and becoming them? How do we set up that defensive perimeter and embed that in the social contract? And can you do that? with attribution, are we just going to become Web3, Facebook, nope. 3.0, whatever?
2: You know, that's a very good concern. Because again, if, if we end up in another Google, Facebook duopoly, that's like a major fail <laughs> for Web3. And just to be clear, that's not at all Spindle's aim whatsoever. Just because I work there, I kind of know the beast. We're not trying to reproduce the beast here, right? How you do it, right? And this was part of the original promise of a lot of programmatic ad technology. You embrace Web3. You make it permissionless. You make it trustless. You make it composable. Like right now, we're thinking about how we're going to work with you know, potentially other partners in the sort of Web3 marketing space to make it easy to work with an attribution system, right? But again, it's going to be fully on-chain, fully transparent. Hopefully, there's no way that a Facebook or a Google emerges from this who just sits there and accrues value, right? The cool thing about Web3, right, to, to echo Dixon, read, write, ownership, right? You have true creators who are creating things. You have their fans who want to enjoy that creative. You have brands that want to address their users. You have apps who want to address your users as well. That's where the value is. That's the cool part, right? You know, the Facebook sitting in the middle with a 70% take rate, that is the enemy and that is not the goal. So anything we have to do has to be geared around that. That's right. And and I think if we do this right, it'll be impossible to have like a Facebook sitting in the middle of it, hopefully. This is cool. Antonia,
0: so we've appreciated your time. And just maybe as we close, I'm curious, like maybe a personal question. What gives you kind of the energy to do this? I mean, you, you, you were around during dot-com boom bust. Yep. You did 2008. That was crazy. That busted. And then you did the whole Web2 thing. You wrote a best-selling book, Chaos. Like you've done all of this stuff. Yeah. Now here we are in 2022. I imagine you don't have to work for financial reasons. Um. I'm imagining you're enjoying what you're doing. Why? Why are you giving it another go? Why are you like, because this is not a one to two year project to me. What this sounds like is another five year type thing in order to get this off the
2: ground. What gives you personal energy right now? I mean, my kids' tuition bills, maybe? No, I'm joking. Um, (laughs) It's it's, it's partially true. Um, Yeah, no, it's exciting. I mean, I've had the Good luck of being kind of in the right place at the right time, like with Facebook, right? I kind of chanced into it, to be honest. But it's the sort of place where if you have the right idea and the ability to execute, you can totally change kind of the course of a technology. And that's super exciting, right? For as much as I kind of bitch and moan about Facebook and, and Chaos Monkeys, it was a hugely exciting thing that, frankly, in retrospect, I should have appreciated more. But now I do, in retrospect, I do appreciate it, right? And I think that weird little tingle I got when I'm like, you know what, I should pitch a up on like outside targeting and joining, like this is gonna like totally upend the apple cart and like who knows what it really does, but it's gonna be big, right? I had that same tingle when it, like I started thinking through what Web3 needs and how to put spindle, it's like, okay, you know, it's the whole Archimedes cliche about like applying the lever and moving the world or whatever, like there's some, like I think it's the right place, it's the right time, it's it's the right person, hopefully, the right team. And it's just, I don't know, it's tremendously kind of exciting. I think I have one like big startup thing left in me. Mm-hmm. And then then I'll really move to the island or the sailboat and just never <laughs> turn off my Twitter account and disappear forever. But I think for the next five to 10 years, we've got a window to really change the way Web3 works. And also like, I you know, ideologically, I'm in the Chris Dixon camp of like, let's wreck the fan companies. Web3 is a new internet, let's create it. Like, to me, half the fun of Web3, like, forget all the reasons that I've told you about why I think it's cool. I'm just tired of talking about Facebook and Google. And Apple. Like, I just, I, I'm just like, f- I'm so fucking tired of hearing about these people. Like, I just want a whole nother internet that doesn't involve them and that I don't have to think about, oh, what's Google going to do if I build this thing? I don't care. I don't want to think about that. I don't want big giants in the picture that can just crush me. Right. And so, yeah, building an alternative internet, I think, is important. Right. That, that's, that's a big deal. Yeah, we absolutely love that sentiment. When we talk about
1: going bankless, it's in direct opposition to Wall Street. But it's also Silicon Valley, too. It is the intermediaries and the arbiters of our experience on the internet that we definitely want to route around. Antonio, one last technical question with Web3. The theme of this podcast has been just like the ad model of Web2 as it's going to change, but still still exist in Web3. Same, same, but different. And I want to unpack that different thing a little bit where I don't think my intuition, my gut tells me that. Nothing's new under the sun. We're still going to have attribution. We're still going to have advertising in Web3. But it's not going to be a one-to-one, the same thing. It's going to look different. And so hopefully, if this goes in line with my general thesis for the space, the ads and ad model of Web3 is going to be, there's going to be more creativity. There's going to be more culture. There's going to be more alignment with the user. There's not going to be sort of like this oppressive owned relationship. When you think about the ad model in Web3, how is it going to be different? How might it be a little bit more vibrant and fulfilling as users of this internet?
2: Yeah, I mean, to be clear to your listeners, I'm using ads in a very abstract level of like mm-hmm. a piece of media that drives a user action. So like NFT drops, right. I think are Web3's first ads, right? Sure. It's addressable media, you can send it to somebody, they may not engage, but maybe they do. But I'm with you that I think if we end up in the world of like little display ads, I mean, that would just suck. Yeah. That would be skeuomorphic to use Dixon's term. Like there has to be something cooler. Maybe it's something like Farcaster, which small investor in full disclosure, Or like a web three version of TikTok where like I'm an influencer, but I own the NFT as you know, the video as an NFT. And then if a brand comes in and wants to use it, they can promote that to some other thing and I still get paid. And there's an attribution system, by the way, that tracks it all, right? Like it has to be something interesting and cool that's not just like little colored squares like interrupting your mobile experience. Mm -hmm. It cannot be that. I don't know. That's why, to be honest, that's why I didn't build like an ad system per se, because I think it's really up in the air and it's really early. But hopefully it's something around again, brands, influencers, creators. There's like a personal connection. Like that's the luxury good in a digital economy, like the connection that I have with that artist and that interaction. Mm -hmm. Somehow doing that in a non-obnoxious way that still gets the creator paid and pays for the Farcaster or whatever the publisher is in the future. Like that's the thing. I'm not sure what it looks like. But I I know it has to be attributed to some degree. So that's why I'm making the bet that I am. But I'm hoping that there's a lot more consumer adoption inside Web3 so that we can start experimenting with these models to see. I personally like Farcaster, but (laughs) I'm a DAU on Farcaster, but um yeah, mm-hmm. things need to get crazier. Right. Like we need to turn up the crazy knob somehow and yeah, have different media experiences. hundred percent, hundred percent, yeah. If the
1: ad model and the acquisition, attribution, all this stuff, if this goes from invasive, like a banner ad is like invasive,
2: it's, right? Yeah, and horrible.
1: it kind of it just gets in the way, right. right? If we go from invasive to enabling, and this is again, a, just a general thesis I have for the space where web two extracts, web three enables. Yeah. The ad model for web three should enable us right. to be better to access cooler things right and antonio if that is what you are working on at spindle to help support that platform i'm all for it so thank you for joining us here with the bankless nation to talk about this story and hopefully how web3 ads can be enhance our lifestyles <laughs> rather than extract
0: from them yeah yeah definitely thanks for having me guys it's been fun bankless nation we appreciate you hanging out with us some action items after today's episode you'll find these in the show notes as always read the post we talked about, the right to never be forgotten, Santoni's San post about privacy, Web3, Contrast versus Web2. Also, his post on why he started Spindle and what problem it's solving. We'll include those links in the show notes. Of course, gotta
2: remind you, risks and disclaimers. Crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but we're headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the bankless journey. Thanks a lot.